Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. My cup runneth over with the quality, again, of people that have decided to come on the Intentional Encourager podcast. And this is a guy that I have followed and long admired. He is a Hall of Fame keynote speaker and the best-selling co-author of the Go-Giver and the Go-Giver book series. And Bob's going to tell you how you can get those books. They're incredible. And he is just a fantastic guy. You can find him on LinkedIn at Bob Berg, B-U-R-G, but you can find him right now on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Bob, how are you today, sir? Terrific, and so great to be with you, Brian. You are one of the most encouraging people I know. It really shouldn't be a surprise. Bob, it's the blind squirrel theory in full effect. It's it's <laughs> a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. I just happen to find my way into some intentional encouragement <laughs> along the way. So, But you're so kind. Thank you for, for your, your, your kind words. Bob, I've got to start here, and I, I've been asking folks since the pandemic started how things have changed in your world, and, and you being a keynote speaker, obviously your stage is, is where people will invite you, and now those stages have become virtual. What has been the biggest thing that you have seen changing for you in the way you deliver your message, and have you tailored your message somewhat? around the pandemic and, and trying to do things a little bit differently around the message? Yeah, those are such great questions. Um, for me, I was very, very fortunate um, in that, uh, not that there's anything fortunate about the pandemic, I don't want to be misunderstood in that regard, but in terms of my own business, fortunate in that I have been for the last few years really doing less and less on the road. You know, I've been speaking for over 30 years now, the travel part, Brian, was never something I, I liked. I always loved my business. I, I loved yeah. being able to speak in front of these great audiences, meeting wonderful people. And But travel was just, I'm a home. You have so. to love it. You really do have to love it to, to do it because I, I'm, I'm a little bit different bird, Bob. I, I like traveling. I like being out and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. and, and surprisingly, you know what the surprising thing about the pandemic was? My wife said, I've enjoyed having you home. I about yeah. had a heart attack. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. And, but, and, but traveling is, you know, for years, though, you had to do that as a part yeah, of And the reason why I always say, you know, I was a good speaker, but not that good. You know, they didn't come to me. Right? <laughs> I don't I believe that for a second. So I don't believe so, that for a second. <laughs> well, you're too kind, but you know, so, so over the last few years and I, I'm at the time we're doing this, I'm, I'm close to being 63. So over the last few years, I've been pulling back on the, the number of, of out of state engagements anyway. Um, so to me, when the pandemic really hit, and I think it was March that it just really kind of, I mean, there were speaker friends of mine, Brian, who, I mean, boom, 50 engagements just off the books. And I mean, yeah with me, it just wasn't, wasn't that bad. So, so it's, it's been sort of for me to be able to, to just say, okay, you know what, I'm just doing these, um, you know, any keynotes, any, I'm just doing them from, from right here. And so it's been great with me. And I, and I've made the decision now that even after uh, this COVID uh, pandemic ends, uh, I'm not traveling anymore. So not, not getting on a plane again. So even after this, all of my engagements will be uh, virtual. So to me, it really wasn't as much of an adjustment. It's one of those things with old age, you know, you get some of those uh, things where it's not as much of a shock. Um, well, yeah, but, you know, Just for Men is a wonderful product, Bob, as you can tell. It's, it, it does wonders to get the gray out of, you know, keep you looking younger and more virile as I rapidly barrel toward 50. And so uh, I, I know exactly what you're saying. I, I got to ask you this, uh, piggybacking <laughs> off of what you just said there. How, when you think about, you, you talked about other speaker friends of yours and, and, and those, those folks that, that, that do that professionally, do that for a living. Uh -huh. Was there ever, did you, did you ever have a, a, a wonder in your mind of, is this now going to be the new normal or was it for you, 
this was the perfect opportunity to do something that you had always really wanted to do in kind of scaling back and doing more virtual things. I, I had never really thought of doing virtual presentations uh, as, as keynotes. That, that was strictly a, a COVID thing. I just knew I was, I was pulling myself off the road more just because as you get older, there's just fewer things you're willing to do, you know, that you just don't, you know, the part of it that, you don't that you don't love to do. So, and we have other, my business partner, Kathy Tejanel, who's absolutely a genius and really runs the business end of it. You know, we've put together over the years, um, uh, other income streams and ways of doing business. It's a lot of fun, such as our, our certified go-giver speaker licensing program, uh, uh, a, um, online uh, online video course and things like that so so between that and and so forth you know i was able to really pull myself off the road more and, and not have it be a, a burden um but i really hadn't thought of the the um uh the virtual speaking but i gotta tell you i really love it you know i've been doing it now and it's just it's a joy you know i charge a lot less obviously than than if i was to to I'm loving it personally. And, and it's, you know, my clients seem to be happy with it, which is the big thing. That's yeah. the important part. So, uh, so yeah. You know, Bob, that's a great point. Message always resonates. It doesn't matter if it's given virtually. It doesn't matter if it's given in person, whenever you have a message that is powerful. Um, and, and I tell people this all the time. I say, look, the one thing that I hope I do is care. And so what, what's that mean? Well, I want to be consistent, authentic, mm -hmm. relatable, and engaging. And Love when you it. have a message <laughs> like that, yeah, when you have a message like that, it doesn't matter if you're virtual or, or if you're in person. So what was the biggest adjustment that you had to make? Because I, I would have to think all the years of keynote speaking, there, there is when you're in front of people and you, you, that's what you do for a living. When, whether you're a performer, you're on stage, things like that. Sure. There is a certain rush so to speak I, I i've saying for a lot of years and, and when you do a live performance there is a rush of of wondering if the audience is getting your your message you know hearing what you're doing are they appreciative and i i have to think in speaking it's the same way what was the biggest adjustment for you going to a virtual platform versus speaking live for so many years i i think there is that concern that that because you're, and I, I agree with you, the, the medium really in the end doesn't matter. Okay, it's all about, are you providing value to them? Are you relating to them? Are you focused on them? Have you done your homework so that you know what they need, what they want, what they desire and how to deliver it? And still it's, it, there's that little difference that, you know, when you're on stage and assuming it's not one of those where it's a, you know, um, dark and, and, and you can't see the, audience yeah. most of the ones i do aren't like that so i can usually see the audience i can go to my go-to people who are nodding and and so forth and i can get a a general feeling of of whether it, whether it's connecting and while you can still you know look at people while you're virtual it, it's different you know there there is a difference um, so I, I think there was some nervousness and I don't think the nervousness has, has gone away yet in terms yeah. of that either, but nervousness of, you know, am I going to be able to really connect on online in the same way that I can, when I'm actually in front of people, which I was so used to doing. I have been really focusing a lot the last year on connection. You know, my new book, people buy from people is a book about connection. Yeah, that, that's such a great, great title. My, my dad, Bob, I'll share this with you. And I've, I've told some people this and the, and the audience may know this. When, when my dad told me that 25 and a half years ago, after, when I got my first sales job, I thought my dad was giving me a good piece of sales advice. And I got halfway through my book, trying to write a sales book and realized that my dad was talking to me about connection. And really th that book could have been people by connection for you as a longtime keynote speaker, how valuable has connection been to you now? in the virtual setting that you're in as opposed to the live setting? Because you just hit on something really important there. You do key on certain people that will nod their head. You know, if you watch a preacher. <laughs> My which I, people like Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I've done preaching and things like that. And so you, you want to make sure that your points are hitting home and you'll look for people that are nodding their head or saying amen, things like that. Now, 
in a speech that you give, if they're saying amen, then you, you're probably in a different audience, but, but you know, yeah. but you, you bring up an important point though. And, and here's a difference between where, between what I did after I got some experience and what I did at the beginning. Um, and, and you brought this up and I, I, I love this. When I was first starting in speaking, I would notice the people who did not seem to be enjoying the message. I'd look at the people who were like this or the people who seemed to not being pay, paying attention, which by the way, you didn't really know what they were thinking, but as an insecure younger yeah. speaker, you're thinking, Oh no, what am I doing? They don't. And I would gear my talk to them. I'd be trying to impress them, try to get them to like me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, after, you know, a while of doing that and it really not, not having a good effect on me or the pro the presentation. And I was counseled by some older speak or, you know, more veteran speakers. No, you know, you, first of all, you're not going to please everyone, no matter how, secondly, you don't really know what they're thinking, which is true because there were yeah. times that I, that people in the audience who were, you know, this, they were just processing the information that way. Cause they came up to me afterwards and told me how, Oh, that was a, you know, what have you, but also no focus on the people who are really getting it yeah. and who are encouraging you as, as you would probably call it your amen corner. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you know, the one person I had to saying amen, you know, Bob, the one person that I had to please in, in that was my wife. If my wife was nodding her head in agreement and she <laughs> and was with me, yeah. I was, I was good. I was good because, yeah. you know, she, She's like, I got to, that's why my wife doesn't listen to the podcast. She's like, I hear you talk enough as it is. Why, <laughs> why, why do I want more of your pontification? Hey everybody, Brian Sexton here. I want to tell you about our sponsor, SEO National. SEO stands for search engine optimization. Now what's that you might say? Well, search engine optimization helps you show up higher on search engines in front of paying customers for words that you as a business owner can monetize. What a great concept. SEO National is owned by my good buddy, Damon Burton, who's been a guest here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Not only has Damon and his team worked with businesses of all sizes, from e-commerce startups to NBA teams and Shark Tank featured businesses, but more importantly, Damon and his team are about transparency, trust, and providing lifetime value. So much so that he still has his first customers after opening SEO National 14 years ago. Let me give you some intentional encouragement and call Damon and his team today at 855-736-6285 or go to www.seonational.com and get a free quote. But I, I gotta ask you this, your Go-Giver series is so is so good. And, and I have had several people that have said to me, you've got to get it. And I will get a copy of the Go-Giver. I've got to, I've got to do that. What was an aha moment that you had around the Go-Giver series that you had never considered when you started writing the Go-Giver series? Um, okay. So I, I think the biggest aha was who our, our first adopters were. And, and first of all, for, you know, for whatever success the, the Go-Giver and the Go-Giver series has had, I've got to really credit my co-author, John David Mann, because he, you know, I'm a how-to author. I'm, I'm step one, step two, step three. All my books before the Go-Giver series and, and since then are how-to books. Um, John is a brilliant writer. You know, he is a master storyteller. So it's really a collaboration because my name's first because my, because of the name B, you know, the last name uh, spelled B with a B. I get, you know, so much credit for that when really it's John's magnificent writing. So I just want to, you know, make sure to acknowledge that. I think the biggest surprise, if you will, was when we both were getting emails from people who were already very, very successful. They were successful long before The, the Go-Giver was published. And what they said is, this is how I did it. This is how I did it. And this is what I've tried to tell other people Wow, is how I did it. And they wouldn't accept it. And you think about it, why? Well, because look at the messages we get from the world around us. Right? Yeah. We get these horrible anti-prosperity messages, anti-free market messages, uh, anti-business messages, anti uh 
you know, uh, whatever messages, you know, it, it's always, uh, you know, the, the uh, look at, and I, and I don't mean to be political here and I apologize, but look, no, at much, please, please uh, the, say what you want to say. No, but absolutely. I mean, look at, look at how much in the primaries of the last uh, election cycle where people were actually saying millionaires and billionaires shouldn't exist. Yeah. I mean, really, <laughs> you know? I mean, how do you even justify saying something like that? Now, obviously, if someone made their money through uh, illegal, immoral, unethical, oh, of course, and there's plenty of people in the world and people do bad things. But in a in a basically free market economy in which we, we live, and, and here I'm not talking about cronyism, I'm not talking about <clears throat> industry and, and special interest buying government favors that provide that. No, I'm yeah. talking about the millions and millions of people who go out there every day trying to add value to others and where people are not forced to yeah. buy from anyone else. Yeah. The only way you can become a millionaire and dare I say a billionaire is by providing immense value to the lives of lots and lots of people. Okay. And so, you know, so we get these, but we get these messages about, you know, if you have money, you did something bad or, well, it's horrible. But anyway, so now we go back to the, you know, why people wouldn't believe that these people who did so well, how they did so well. And so, so these people would get the books and buy them for their team members, uh, their protégés, their people who they wanted to spread the message to. Okay, and this happened a lot. Now, the second wave of adopters were the people who were told about the book from someone who they respected and were successful. Yeah. And it was like, oh yeah, this is exactly how so-and-so said they did it, but I didn't believe them. You know, we hear that so much and it just, you know, goes to show. So that was, a that was, now in retrospect, maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise, but that was a surprise both to John and to, uh, you know, and to me. I grew up a baseball fan, Me too. and 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 there was a book that was written decades ago that Ted Williams wrote, and some people argue that Ted Williams is the greatest hitter that ever lived, and he wrote a book called The Science of Hitting, and I can imagine, Bob, to your point about first and second adopters, it's almost like handing your 10-year-old your who's starting to play Little League and has some ability handing him this book or her if she plays softball and saying if you want to be a great hitter read this book the science of hitting by ted williams <laughs> well that, thank you i appreciate you're yeah. even mentioning me in the same well, uh, but, but I, as the splendid splinter absolutely well but but i say that bob because again there were so many big league hitters that when ted williams were was still alive like tony gwynn and pete rose and people mm -hmm. like that that would seek out Ted Williams's counsel sure. about hitting and would follow his guidelines and principles about hitting because mm -hmm. they wanted to be a better hitter themselves. Yeah. And and Williams, and I, and I don't want to belabor the point, but Williams was so gifted. A lot of the things that he did was so were so gifted. His eyesight was so good mm -hmm. that he could pick up a dot on a 95 mile an hour fastball with the ball spinning to the plate. That's how good it was. Right. And right. there's just some things that you can't teach or you can't put into a book that you just have naturally. But I said all that to say this is that I kind of feel like what you're saying is that these team members were putting the go-giver in their team's hands and saying, if you want to have a modicum of success, in the ways that you want to have that modicum of success, you might want to read this book and let it help you. Yeah, I think it was that third-party credibility. You know, they're not going to listen to me because they know me too well. So well, let's get this book that says basically the same thing I've been trying to tell them for years and just give them the book and let them see. Let, and, and then they go, hey, did you see this idea that they talked about in there? Oh, sure. Yeah, great idea. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. You know, and that's... <laughs> 
I really had you on to talk about baseball. So, I, I mean, I hope that's well, <laughs> I gotta tell you, So, one of my favorite stories is Go a ahead. Tony Gwynn story. Oh, yeah. I would love to hear that. And, yes. and, I, and I'm, I, I haven't heard the story for a while, so I hope I don't mess it up too bad. And I, and I don't remember who exactly said this, but a pit, one of the great pitchers who pitched during Gwynn's day Mr. Wednesday was asked about, you know, how to pitch or, or about his secret of pitching and what he had to do. And he said, well, the secret of, of, of being a great pitcher is this, you've got to, you know, and he, he went through like three or four or five things that a pitcher would be able to do an experienced pitcher. And he said, and that will work. He said, you do that and you're going to have great success. Except if you're facing Tony Gwynn, you just hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I grew up a Cincinnati Reds fan. I grew up a a you know I was a young I was a young kid in the tail end of the big red machine. So I grew oh. up I I grew up watching. They beat our Red Sox in '75 in the greatest series that you know perhaps there's ever been. I 100% agree. And I I grew up th this is Reds country where I live. So that my, they were my dad's team. Mm -hmm. We lived three hours from Cincinnati. I talk about it in my book. The first time I went to Riverfront Stadium, I was five years old. And Pete Rose is playing, and Johnny Bench, and Tony Perez, and and Ken Griffey, and and Cesar Geronimo. And yeah, that, the Morgan. big red machine was just awesome. Yeah, they they were tremendous. And then they had in in '77 they traded for Tom Seaver again, a, a tremendous player. But that team, you know, it was all about for them. It wasn't about they were just so consistent. They were just so, they were just so good for a long period of time because their guys didn't lead the league in any categories. I mean, Rose might've led the league in hits and, and Perez might've led the league in RBIs, but they didn't have astronomically gaudy numbers. They were just so consistently yeah. good. They just knew how to win. Yeah. That's what oh, made oh, them so good. They did. They, they were amazing. And then, you know, you had people like Joe Morgan, who was probably the most underrated second baseman, if, if not ball player ever, who was just, just so good and such a spark. And, you, you know, yeah. yeah. Wow. And, you know, I, I remember hearing the story that in the, in the, the world series, it was, I think it was the, it was the fifth or sixth game or something. I'm, I'm not sure, but that uh, Rose, Pete Rose uh, came into third and, and after the play was over, he, you know, he looked at Rico Petroselli, the third baseman, and said, heck of a game, isn't it? Yeah, he said, this, is, the, this is so much fun. This is the great. Yeah. It was like the I mean, 10th or 11th inning of that 12-inning yeah. of, of game. Yeah. And that's the famous Carlton Fisk home run. And yeah, right. what, what people right. don't understand is that game would have never gone to extra innings had there not been former Red Bernie Carbo who Carbo. hit a pinch hit home run, That's right, the which field. was incredibly improbable because Bernie Carbo didn't hit home runs. No. And he no. hit it off of one of the, the Reds' best relief pitchers, yeah. a guy named Pat Darcy. Yeah. And, and he had two strikes yeah. against him. So yeah. He, you know, he, <laughs> and Bob, that yeah. was a great Red Sox team. You had Carl, you had Carl Yastrzemski who was in, who was in yeah. the later stages of his career but Jim Rice and Fred Lynn and Dwight yeah. Evans and Carlton Fisk and, or Carlton and, uh, Fisk. Yeah. yeah. They, they were, they were yeah. a, a terrific team. It was, that was, I mean, it was really one of the best world series I think ever, even after that two game, uh, two day rain delay yeah. in the fifth and sixth game. And, you know, it was such a great series. Like, oh man. And it's raining for these two days. Is that going to take away? And, you know, during the sixth game, it was like, it never stopped. It yeah. Was, it, it, yeah. Baseball in baseball in its heyday. I, you, you, you I, yeah, I love it. I would be remiss, and you and I could talk baseball all day long and have a great <laughs> conversation. I would be remiss if I didn't get to your story because your story is is why I wanted to have you on the podcast. And so, Bob, take me as far back as you want to take me from point A to to where we are today, and uh, just <laughs> just tell your amazing story, sir. Okay, I'll, I'll do the Reader's Digest version. Okay, I, I started out in radio doing sports. Okay, and you don't uh, say you kind of got that radio voice going. Yeah, well, and, I, and I said the first thing I said about you is you have we used to call it in the business a great set of pipes, right? You have that, you know, that kind of deep, and it's a it's a great voice. Who was so your favorite? You right you well, I didn't mean to. Interrupt, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but who no. was your favorite? Growing up, you you started in sports radio. Who were some of your influences or some of your heroes in radio back then? Well, okay. So, I mean, listening to the Red Sox games back then, because I grew up in the Boston area, of course. And so, so back then they, they, 
um, went from TV to radio in the different booths. So Ned Martin was always great to listen to. Ken Coleman was fantastic. Um, uh, on radio, there was a guy on WHDH, which, which was the big AM station at the time, which again, in my day, H, uh, AM was, you know, pretty much. And it was a guy named Dan Davis. And, and Dan had. And I not, love Dan Davis. No, he no wait, there was ESPN a Dan radio. Davis that worked for ESPN. This is yes. a different one. Actually. Okay. I, I thought yeah. that was the same one. Yeah. Because and, he, and I, right. He called the he called the famous Doug Flutie play. Yeah, no, this is a yeah. different Dan Davis actually, and and I apologize for misleading it at first with that because I forgot there was the ESPN Dan Davis. No, this was a guy. He was the WHDH sports anchor, and he had this magnificent deep voice, Dan Davis HDH sports, <laughs> and just a great. And uh, you know, and I remember once I was at I was covering a a, um, a tennis tournament. Uh, in Boston, I can't remember what it what it's called, but it was the big one that they used to have there every year. And Dan Davis was there, of course. You know, it's like seeing Mickey. It's like a young ball player seeing Mickey Mantle. You know, a young sportscaster seeing Dan Davis. And I introduced myself. Couldn't have been nicer. You know, just he invited me to to come. You know, to come to to the state th station one day and watch. I mean, what a great guy. And you know, it just really goes to show that you know that really the bigger people are. Uh, the nicer they typically are. And I just remember, and, and I remember he was coming, and, and here was a, a really cool thing about Dan Davis, because when I was at the station and he was asking me about how he put together some of the sports stories and, 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 uh, and or he was, he was actually showing me how he does when he said, what you want to do is he said, you know, for the soundbite that you use, just ask one question. So you don't have to go through, you know, everything to get and put that in the store. And I said, Oh man, I said, or I said, oh, wow, Mr. Davis, I've been doing it all wrong. I've been asking tons of questions because I never know exactly if what I'm asking is the right one. And then I find the one I to use. I said, thank you for telling me. And here's what he said. He said, Bob, he said, actually, you're right. He said, I asked the one question because I've been doing this for 40 years. He hmm. said, when I was your age, that's exactly what I did too. So you're right. Keep doing what you're doing. And I thought, wow, what a great guy. You know, he, no ego. It was just, you know, he had said something. I had, I, and I was just saying, wow, thank you. Because he, and he said, no, no, you're right. <laughs> I mean, wow. that takes confidence and that takes class to do mm -hmm. something. And I think that's something that as leaders, we can all learn. We don't always need to be right. Was that kind of the first seminal moment for you that, that you saw go giving in action? Because this was a guy that didn't have to, you were a young sportscaster, and he showed you a gracious he, – he gave you a gracious piece of advice in that moment. Was that the first time that you really saw that in action in your professional career? In my professional career, I would say yes. I, I would also go back to – do you remember Bobby Orr from the Bruins? Absolutely remember Bobby Orr. Great, yeah, and, and great hockey player. Absolutely amazing. Number four, yeah. Bobby Orr. Number yes. four, Bobby Orr. Absolutely. And – I was covering a um, celebrity golf tournament uh, near, you know, where I lived. And now Bobby Orr, you got to realize in Boston was, it was sort of like Ted Williams. I mean, he was like, he was just, wow, Bobby Orr. And I remember seeing, and Bobby Orr was one of the guest celebrities who was, who was participating in the golf tournament. So Bobby Orr's car came and, and, you know, everyone's crowding around. It's Bobby Orr. And I thought this is a great opportunity to get a, you know, a, a quick question and, and answer from that I could put on, but just so I could have Bobby Orr on the thing. I can't tell you how nervous I was like 19. No, well, I must've been about 20, 21, 22 or whatever, but I was well, a young he's kid. Boston, he's Boston royalty. He with Yaz and Absolutely. Ted Williams and guys right like up. that. He's exactly. Boston royalty. So why would you not be? It would be like a young kid like myself as a Reds fan meeting Pete right. Rose or Johnny it, Bench. It, it, exactly. Exactly. So I start to walk over to Bobby Orr, and I was nervous, and, and, I, and I, I think he could probably tell I was. As soon as I got up and I said, Mr. Orr, could I ask you a really quick question? And he went, sure. And you know what he did? He took his arm, and he locked his arm with my arm, and we walked together as I asked him the question. I mean, holy cow. I mean, it was like we were best buddies. Sure. Can I, Mr. Orr, could I ask you a really quick question? Sure, absolutely. Lock his arm with mine. Just talk like we were friends. I mean, that's such empathy, you know, and such humility. 
And by the way, that's from everybody who ever, ever talked about Bob Yor. That's what they said. You would never know he was anyone special by how he how he carried himself and 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 spoke to others. You were really fortunate in in having interactions with people that you admired that turned out to be really well because sometimes yeah, <laughs> yeah because sometimes, sometimes not, yeah, yeah because sometimes um people can come across I remember the first time I met Reds Hall of Fame broadcaster Marty Brenneman. I had listened to Marty Brenneman since since I was a kid. I can remember my dad having a white uh, alarm clock radio in the late 70s and that's what we would listen to Reds games. We'd get in the car and listen to Reds games. The first time I met Marty Brenneman, I called my I met Marty Brenneman I met, and Joe Nux all the same because I grew up on those voices. And sometimes the people that you meet that you admire are not mm-hmm. the people oh, yeah. that that you thought they were. You are very fortunate in that respect. As you go on in your broadcasting career, what were some other things that that you were able to do in your broadcasting career? that that stand out to you maybe somebody you met or somebody like that or th- those are fantastic stories bob well it was a really it was a pretty short broadcasting career because after radio i then um i got a job on on tv as a um uh news guy for a very very small abc affiliate uh in the midwest and um and i i worked my way up to the late night news anchor ship uh, but I really wasn't very good. I was a sports guy. I really wasn't a, a news guy. That's just what was that like for you transitioning? Because I, I got to think you you grow up in the Boston area. You worked Boston radio, which is a, a, a major metropolitan city. Oh, but I was on the outskirts. I was small town. Small but you, town but area. you, but but again, you go from the Northeast mm-hmm. to the Midwest. Oh, that was an adjustment. <laughs> yeah, tell me, tell take me through that a little bit. What 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 was what was the challenge that you faced? that you 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 probably weren't prepared for because when people transition they move up to these different markets and sometimes you have to go from a larger market to a smaller market to work your way back up in broadcasting and things like that it's always seemed to have been that way what was that adjustment like for you moving to the midwest from the northeast well so i i um moved to a, a little town called ada oklahoma that's it was for KTEN TV, which is no longer there, but they were the the uh, ABC affiliate there. Um, so first, you know, growing up in Massachusetts, I, I never realized, you know, what a Boston accent I had. I just thought we spoke regular, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, you went to the park and who, who thought anything, you know, different of it. You, you pronounce the R's that, or that, that weren't there and you didn't pronounce the ones that were so so. Even when I was on in, in doing sports, I was you know kind of getting made fun of uh, about that. So I, I took a diction course uh, at a local college, and I can't tell you how many hours I walked around my house uh, practicing you know the, the the way to speak. But by the time I got to Oklahoma, uh, I, I hadn't totally lost that accent yet. And by the way, I can't I can't stand the Boston accent now only because. I, once I realized what it was, you know, there's people yeah. say, oh, I love the Boston accent. Well, you know, um, and it probably is a great accent, but once I realized I had it, it that's all I could, you yeah. know, and so I tried so hard to lose it. And I pretty much have, unless I get excited and I start, you know, talking. And think about the transition from going from the Northeast with the Boston accent, going to Oklahoma. Oh, Sure. It would almost like, from an accent standpoint, it would almost be like landing on a foreign planet. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, um, you know, plus, I mean, there was also, you know, a, a little bit of a cultural dis, uh, difference where you have a, you know, northeastern Jewish kid going to really the Bible Belt of, of Oklahoma. Now, of course, growing up in Massachusetts, uh, you know, my friends were all, you know, Catholic and Protestant and that, so there wasn't any, but, but religion up in the northeast isn't quite as really out there in, in public, you know what I'm saying? Yes. As when you get to small town Oklahoma. But the people there were absolutely, absolutely wonderful to me. I I couldn't have enjoyed living in Ada, Oklahoma more. Uh, just wonderful, wonderful people. Um, but, it, you know, it was sort of like, you know, sometimes, a, you know, Mork from Mork type of thing, where you know you were in, <laughs> you're yeah. in a place where things were there were a lot of differences, and <laughs> you yeah. know. Hey 
Hey everybody, Brian Sexton. I want you to go check out my new book, People Buy From People. 10 powerful people lessons from the ultimate people person, my dad. My dad was the ultimate connector and the ultimate intentional encourager. And he shared with me 10 connecting lessons that I'm gonna share with you in this book, interwoven with stories and personal anecdotes that will help you really see what connecting is truly all about. If you wanna be a more powerful, stronger, deeper connector, whether you're in ministry or leadership or sales, you own a business, whatever you want to do that connects you with people and you want to connect with them stronger, deeper, and more powerfully, People Buy From People is for you. I want you to go to amazon.com and search People Buy From People, Brian Sexton. It's available in paperback and Kindle and coming soon, excited about this, coming soon to Audible. Thank you in advance for picking up a copy of People Buy From People. And now let's get back to a great conversation here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. You're like, you know, seven Jews who lived in the town and, and many of them had never met one. And, you know, and that, so <laughs> and, and a lot, a lot less traffic in Ada, Oklahoma <laughs> than there is in the greater Boston area. Yeah, well, sure. And, um, but, but really though, the, the people couldn't have been more, more nice and, and kind and, and more welcoming. I made some of my best friendships there. And yeah. What, what prompted you to, to transition away from broadcasting? Because there are a lot of guys yeah. and gals that, that, that make it to a certain level and, and they're asked to leave. They're, they, they, they're, you know, because, of, and, and look what's happened now in the world of journalism and broadcasting, where there's a lot of great talented people that are just being forced out of the business just because it's, it's, it's compressing. Yeah. It, it's really compressing. What was that moment like for you when you started transitioning from broadcasting into the next phase of your life? I just realized I really wasn't very good at the news stuff. I mean, I could read the news. That's pretty easy, but I, I certainly was not a journalist uh, and nothing in sports was, you know, really opening up there. And, and, um, you know, had, had I had an opportunity to maybe be a game show host, I think I would have done pretty well with that, but that wasn't the opportunity. Yeah. So I started selling. Well, not in Ada, Oklahoma. Yeah. There's right. no game shows exactly. that are filming yes. in Ada, Oklahoma. Exactly. And, <laughs> and so, um, uh, I started selling advertising for the station just to make some extra money. Cause again, small town, I, it wasn't like I was making a lot of money. And um, so I floundered for the first few months of, of sale because I had no sales, you know, formal sales background. Uh, fortunately, one day I was in a, a um, bookstore and, uh, and I came across two books on selling, which doesn't seem like a big deal now, but 40 years ago, that was a big deal. I, and I didn't even know there was such a thing, a, a book on how to sell. I thought it was just knocking on doors, talking to people, blah, 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 which of course is not selling but that's you know what did i what did i know uh and i got two books one was by zig ziglar and one was by tom hopkins two of the icons of the uh the, yes. the sales industry um and uh i i i always say i never read the books i devoured the books and i would just come home after my day and i would into the wee hours of the morning i would read and study and highlight and note take and you know, scribble and rehearse. And the, within about three weeks, my sales began to go through the roof. I mean, it was a marked difference. And the difference was I now had a methodology. I now had a system for doing so. I am not a invent the wheel type of person. <laughs> I'm, not that smart, I'm glad right? you mentioned Zig, Bob. I've got it. I've got to jump in there. I'm glad you mentioned Zig because Zig's one of Zig's quotes is is one of my very favorite quotes and, and and i can i can see you i can envision how would devouring those books would change you because zig always said encouragement is the fuel that powers hope mm -hmm. and and when you're encouraged you're empowered and yeah. so i i can i can begin to see as you're telling that story of of two and by the way you read those books 40 years ago you could give those books to someone today and read them. And, and a lot of that, that stuff that Zig and Tom were talking about still mm -hmm. applies even today. But I think what made Zig so good was that he knew how to speak to a lot of people 
and put himself right. It was almost like Zig was probably sitting in the room with you oh, and yeah. talking to you and saying, but now, Bob, you can do this. Now, Bob, yeah. you can you can do that. It's been a joy uh, getting to know Tom, his son. He, Tom's a friend of mine. Oh, Tom. I, I just love Tom. Tremendous. Tom is carrying on his dad's legacy uh, in, in such a wonderful way. And, you know, it's – one of the greatest experiences uh, I ever had, one of the greatest thrills was when I, I used to hold my business partner and I used to hold a, um, an event um, in, in Orlando every year where we'd have a whole bunch of speakers come in and so forth. Well, so in this particular year, uh, we wanted to present Zig with the first annual, this back my first annual Go-Giver Lifetime Achievement Award. Oh, wow. So, yeah. This is about 10 years ago. And I, I don't know if, if you know that that Zig's last the last couple of years of Zig's life, um, he had suffered from a head trauma, a very bad head injury in which he had very Tom talked injury. about that here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. And I saw Zig in Charleston, West Virginia in 2008. And I write about it in the book because uh, Zig's daughter, Julie, Julie, would feed him some questions. Right. And, and Zig was just... When, when, when he was in that vein of just being Zig and everything was just coming back, you could see the clarity as he just began to just pour out of himself all that wisdom and all that, that knowledge. And I was just frantically, Bob, I was frantically writing and taking notes because I, I loved Zig. And, and I, I shared that story with Tom and Tom shared how his dad, had, had suffered a head injury. Um, ironically, Zig died about a week and a half before my, my own father passed away. Uh, we, it's, it's very, it, yeah, it's very, and I have shared that with Tom, but I can only imagine the impact. I've got to ask you, I've got to go here for just a, a minute. If you, if you don't mind, no, go ahead. The impact that Zig had on you, were you able to tell Zig what his impact meant to you? Because I, I believe in telling people while they're here what their impact means to me if they have profoundly impacted me what, what was that conversation like when you guys presented zig with that award yeah so so he was on stage and um and mrs ziggler was on stage with him and so was tom julie was not able to to attend that one but but tom was and when I <clears throat> presented the award, I actually got to do an imitation of Zig um, from, you know, one of his tapes. Because I tell the story about how when I got his tapes, uh, I listened to them like, you know, 15 times in a row. And on the 16th time, I, he gave me the answer to a question that I had had. And somehow I missed them the first 15 times. But on the 16th time, he answered that question, right? And I, so I, I got to actually do an impersonation of Zig on stage in front of Zig. And you could tell that he knew. You know, it was say he didn't quite, uh, you know, understand exactly. But you, you could tell he knew that it was a tribute to yeah. him and um but he, and, and here's the thing afterwards when they got off stage um and, and by the way mrs ziggler told me uh that it was the first time ever that she was on stage with zig ziggler wow yeah and that is so like, neat like oh uh, so <laughs> so so when they got off stage they um you know we we had them seated somewhere to sign autographs and they i am telling you it had to be an hour and a half or two hours. They just signed autographs for everybody who wanted one. They hugged everyone who wanted a hug. They talked to people who wanted to talk. For, for I was going to say for months, probably was months, but I'm thinking for weeks, I got emails from people who had attended the program saying with all the great speakers who were there, and we had a lot of great speakers at that event, that just seeing that Zig and Mrs. Ziggler and Tom, the Zigglers, were the exact people off stage as they are on stage. Yeah. It was just one of the most beautiful things ever. Tell me the greatest lesson you learned from Zig when, when you were going through that, that time. I yeah. can tell you another uh, about. Please do. About please, a, please. It was about a year later and I was in, uh, I was at their offices. I was, I was going to be on Tom's, uh, Tom had a uh, webcast at the time, a video webcast. 
And so the guest speaker who would come on that Tom would interview beforehand, uh, Tom and the, the guest would go out to lunch with his dad, with Zig. So, so we're at the restaurant. And again, remember Zig with his head injury, didn't remember what he was, you know, saying from one thing, you know, one minute sometimes to the next. And he would, so he'd repeat himself. And it was always, by the way, so beautiful how his kids just so lovingly honored him by just gently working with him. And oh, it was, it was just so wonderful. But Zig was talent talking about encouragement, right? And he was talking about how the biggest thing missing today for kids is encouragement. Okay, now, so that, that I just thought was cool, but here's, here's what was just awesome. Where Zig was at that point in his life, at his age, and, and again, with his head injury, he said, you know, Bob, uh, every day I learn something new and here's how I do it. And he reached into his pocket and he took out a notepad and his, his pen. And he showed me mm. right there that, that he's still learning. Wow. He's still learning, you know? Wow. <sighs> oh. what, what a man, what, what, a, what a man, one of my heroes. And, and it, it was I'll tell you this, Tom and I connected, um, we connected a, a couple of years ago. And, and what I love about Tom is he is so gracious. And, and I said, Tom, I, I don't mean to continue to fawn on about your dad. The impact was just so great. And he said, Brian, don't worry about it. The impact was great on me as well. You know, yeah. and, and so I, I love that. Please, very quickly, and, and I want to be respectful of your time and the audience's time, Bob. When, when you are, are going through that time in sales, and, and, and how, because I, I get a sense that there are some folks that, that might be in a Bob Berg place themselves where they're, they're, they're doing something on the side to make some extra money. They're trying to figure out through this pandemic that, Maybe there's something else for me to do. Um, I normally would say this and, and have you tell more of your story. I just feel like you've got a word of encouragement. So share with folks your biggest obstacle you overcame and the lesson you learned from it. Well, biggest obstacle in, in life uh, is just is having obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. And having that since the time I was a little kid, it wasn't diagnosed till I was about 26, because back then when I was growing up, who knew about that? Mm -hmm. So that's always, it's a very debilitating, uh, it's very different from when people say, oh, I'm so OCD about, they don't even have a clue. Uh, totally different thing. Uh, it's a chemical imbalance in the, in the brain and it's, it's very debilitating. So that's something I've always had to, to live with and, and so forth. And um, I, I, I can't, and, and, and. There's nothing about having obsessive compulsive disorder that would help one be successful. Now, someone can be obsessive about things or compulsive about things, and maybe that is helpful, but this is a whole different thing, this disorder. You don't succeed because of OCD. You succeed despite OCD. Yeah. And so while I can't think of anything good that has come from it, I will say this. It probably instilled in me a a real, real highly developed sense of empathy for the pain of others. And it allows me to kind of really put myself in another person's shoes in terms of their, their pain and, and helps me to really focus on, on, on them. Now, <clears throat> in terms of a, a lesson that I learned that I think any and every salesperson can, can use it was spoken to me by a very wise man who, this is a couple of years after I was in sales and I've been doing pretty well, but I was in a sales slump. And in this slump, I started really focusing on myself and how am I gonna get out of it? And I was panicking, I made it all about me instead of who it should be about my customers, right? And I remember a very wise man, I didn't know him very well, but he was a very wise man. Whenever he said something, it was always very profound. And I think he saw me as sort of like Joe in the story that I would co-author 20 years or 25 years later, you know, a young up and coming, aggressive, ambitious salesperson who was frustrated because as hard as he worked, 
he was not getting the kind of success he felt right and he said to me can i give you a, a he said bert he was a last name kind of guy he said bert can i give you a piece of advice i said absolutely please do and he said if you want to make a lot of money in sales he said don't have making money as your target your target is serving others now when you hit the target he said you'll get a reward and that reward will come in the form of money and you can mm -hmm. do with that money whatever you choose but never forget the money is simply the reward for hitting the target it ain't the target itself yeah. your target is serving others wow and that's when it hit me that's when it really hit me that great salesmanship is never about the salesperson just as great leadership is never about the leader great salesmanship is never about the product or service as important as that is great salesmanship like great leadership is always about the other person it's about those whose lives you want to bring value to it's about other people's lives being just a little bit better because you were part of it and i think when we are able to shift our focus from what i call an i focus or me focus to an other focus now we're really nine steps ahead of the game in a 10-step game that is so good that is so good i've got to ask you this this last question you've been so gracious with your time there's a lot of different ways we could carry the conversation and, and we will we'll have to get another have to record another episode because bob okay. there's so much there right please share with with the audience your biggest piece of intentional encouragement Oh, my biggest piece of intentional encouragement, you know, I, I, I think in a sense, it's believing <clears throat> so much in your personal mission, you know, in what, in the value you're looking to bring to the world that, um, you know, I think if you believe in it enough and you believe that you're really there for something bigger than yourself, <clears throat> you, you really can be unstoppable. Wow. So good. So good. The Go-Giver series, you can find it on, uh, tell folks where they can find it. I want to, I don't want to try to tell them where they can find it. I, I want the author to tell them where they can find the Go-Giver series. Uh, best place is probably just at the website, Berg, B-U-R-G.com. And there's a whole bunch of other fun resources there you can check out. Berg.com, B-U-R-G. Very simple enough. Bob Berg. I'm a simple guy. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, some people yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you know, look at, look <laughs> at me, the intentional encourager podcast. You can't get much simpler than this, but Bob, this has been so good. Uh, I've, I've looked forward to this conversation for a good while. I've admired you and your work and what an honor it is to have you today on the intentional encourager podcast. And I do thank you so much for your time. The honor is mine. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Meads. And the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. And until next time, remember, everyone, everywhere, at any time, and any place can be an intentional.